Welcome to Doing a World of Good, a podcast from the American Institute of Chemical Engineers and generously supported by Raj and Kumla Gupta, shining the light on the positive works of our members and supporters. I'm your host, Bob Norp. Now, when each of us considers our own career, undoubtedly we will find that there were iconic individuals who inspired us. Now, maybe we had direct contact with them or maybe not, but these role models often went beyond being mere mentors to become a guiding force for the entire industry, showing us all what could be possible if we were brave enough to follow in their footsteps. So to tackle the subject of the essential need of role models in our business, we thought we'd bring on a couple such individuals to get their perspective on this. Now, first up, we have Dr. Lilia Abram, who not only is the first African-American woman to receive a PhD in chemical engineering, but also went on to found Peer Engineering and Peer Africa, which led the industry into the issues of environmental engineering long before it was in vogue to do so. Dr. Abram, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Bob. I'm very happy to be here. Oh, we're pleased to have you with us as well. Now, we also welcome back Dr. Gilda Barabino. Uh, she is dean of the school, uh, Grove School of Engineering at the City College of New York. And from what I understand, Dr. Barabino, a newly elected member of the National Academy of Engineering, as well as a recently being included in Crane's inaugural list of notable women in tech. Congratulations and welcome <laughs> back to the program. Uh, thank you so much, and I'm happy to be back. Well, we're going to jump right into this, and we might as well just deal with the subject head on right from the start. Um, the term role model is a loaded expression. I think we can all agree on that. Now, many times people are uncomfortable with the distinction being applied to themselves, and yet having access to role models is essential to inspiring the next generation to pursue their career goals so what do you think this reluctance is all about? And do you believe that this reticence to be called a role model may actually hold back advancement? Um, Dr. Barabino, would you take this one first and tell us what your thoughts are on the term role model and, and whether or not we should embrace it a little bit more wholeheartedly or uh, is reticence a good thing? Sure. So personally, I tend to embrace the term and serving as a role model because I review, I view it as a responsibility to the next generation, but also to those who came before me who paved the way. And in many ways I've seen throughout my career in fields where the representation of women is so low, if you're um, one of a few or the only, you don't necessarily have a choice about being a role model or not. And that said, I do understand why some might be hesitant to embrace um, serving as a role model, because there's often there's this overwhelming feeling of being responsible for others, uh, not wanting to let people down. There's a fear of your technical accomplishments not uh, being seen for what they are. So maybe they're dis diminished if in the same breath they talk about the technical accomplishments and say you were the first African-American woman. Mm -hmm. So there's that tendency to, um, you know, be a little bit reserved or hesitant about that. But I think at the end of the day, it's really important for us to embrace the role, serve as role models and mentors for others. And having had a real absence of that in my own career, I've been very um, attuned to serving in that role myself. And I, I just want to say, 
in particular, that someone like Lilia Abram, who is the first African-American female to receive a Ph.D. in chemical engineering. When I received my Ph.D. in chemical engineering, I was the fifth. And I did not have the opportunity to meet Lilia until much later in my career. Having met her later in my career has been very um, useful, instrumental, and she's been a forceful mentor since I've had the opportunity to meet her. And Lilia's even currently serving on the external advisory board for the Grove School of Engineering. Oh, that's that's fascinating. You guys have that kind of connection, and that's that's it's wonderful how even in the later stages, not saying you're old or anything, but <laughs> the later <laughs> stages of your education and of your of your career, you're actually finding value in having this relationship. Dr. Abram, you know, as the, the, the first woman having gotten a PhD in chemical engineering, why did you think about this role that you had to take on as being a role model for so many people who are following in your footsteps? Well, it is a bit overwhelming, and I did not know that I was the first African-American to get a PhD oh, that's in chemical so engineering that's so interesting. Un- until many years later through a very good friend, uh, Dr. Victor Rogers, who's also a good friend to Gilda. Uh, he called me one day when I was teaching at Tennessee State and he said, hi, he said, I'm Victor Rogers. I said, okay. He said, I work at the University of Iowa in the chemical engineering department. And I said, oh, yeah, I heard about you. You're one of the new professors there. And he said, yeah. And he said, you know, somebody told me that you had graduated from the program. And I said, really? (laughs) You know, and he said, so I went and looked it up. And he said, do you realize that you are the first African-American to get your Ph.D. in chemical engineering from here? And I said, no. And then he went on to say, and I did some more research, and you seem to be (laughs) the only one. And I said, oh. So I said, well, why don't we just do it like this and say we're the, you know, that we're, that's the only one, because I'm sure there have been others, but maybe they didn't tell you they were black or whatever. I said, I don't know. But as it started to sink in, it's been rather difficult. Difficult and in what way? You think about it. Well, because you feel like you are letting people down, and maybe you can't do what they look up to you to do. Mm. And I try um, to do my specialty is environmental, and we all have different ways of, you know, things that we've specialized in. And I tried to do the best and to lay the groundwork. I make myself available to students. I'm on Dr. Barabino's board. I'm on other boards of colleges and universities. And when I go, I like to visit the students. I speak to students. I don't charge any money for speaking events and things like this. But Sometimes when they say, and she's the first African-American woman, and I just say, oh, would you all please don't tell people that? (laughs) Because I just, you know, it's almost like this thing of the imposter syndrome. And sometimes I just say, wow, 
I'm living that. So it it is overwhelming, but I try to do my best. This, and I am honored because other people, as Gilda has said, they consider that very important and they consider that something great. So I try to do that. And I try to do good by doing good, but sometimes it can be a bit overwhelming. But I try to live up to it as best I can because I don't want to let others down. You know, this leads really, really well into my next question because this is something that I've encountered a lot, this imposter syndrome. There's no doubt that engineering is a male-dominated discipline. And obviously, much of this can be attributed to gender biases in education, business, society, etc. But there's also the fact that men tend to be more comfortable taking the spotlight, being role models, taking credit for things, whether they deserve it or not, whereas women tend to be more ethically minded about whether they've earned the attention. Do you see this as a problem or a distinctive strength that needs to be better exploited? Dr. Barabino, you take this one first. Sure. So I think that we can um, speak about and own our accomplishments and still be the nurturing um, women that we are. Like you can do both. And I think it's very important for <clears throat> excuse me, us to understand that this female approach of being nurturing and being inclusive and being willing to uh, do things for the good of society, that's a strength. We should capitalize that and and build Mm -hmm. on that and do more. I think the way that women often approach um, the world actually is better for our workplace. It's better to help us understand how we should teach and carry out research, how we should conduct ourselves in the workplace. It's good for creating a sense of belonging, creating inclusive communities, building trust and respect. And ultimately, those are the kinds of things that are going to move us forward, increase productivity and increase the bottom line. So at the same time, I think own it. That's who we are as women. Those are our strengths. At the same time, we should be more comfortable in telling our stories and If we want to make the world a better place, if we want to be serious about doing a world of good, we need to have more women in charge. I feel that very strongly. And um, do you have any specific examples of situations where you were confronted with this, where um, it was essential for you to take the role of role model in a very um, uncomfortable, maybe? boundary expanding way in order to achieve some kind of objective? Is there some kind of example that you can point to that maybe gives us an an understanding of the struggle it is to be a role model and also the benefits of being a role model? Sure. I think that in general, and I'm saying this for myself, but I would say this for other women who have entered into higher levels of academic administration where it's a predominantly male Uh, environment and where the leaders are predominantly male. So just in serving as dean of engineering, when I was appointed at City College in 2013, it was the first African female appointed as uh, engineering dean at City College, but the first African-American female in the nation to be appointed as an engineering dean at a school that was not a historically black college or university. Mm. So walking in the door, I was confronted with perceptions 
before anyone knew anything about me or, or my work style or just walking in the door, they see a black woman in a position that they're not accustomed to seeing a black woman in. There's already the societal kinds of implications and, and responses. So I saw it and still see it as very important for me to serve in that type of role and do it well to make a way for others who look like me to be in these leadership roles where we can have the kinds of influence that we need to as we try to train the next generations. So I think that's one example. And it, and I said it's not unique to me, but I think others who are in these breaking down barriers in leadership roles that have typically not been held by people who look like us or come from our background. Dr. Uh, Dr. Abram, uh, tell us about uh, any particular situation where you had to kind of bend boundaries and, and go into that uncomfortable place. Because I know you talked about, you know, the resistance to being called a role model or being called necessarily the first African-American to receive, African-American woman to receive a PhD. I mean, putting you in that position might have made you uncomfortable, but where has it become valuable? Where has it given you an opportunity to inspire people in a way that you didn't necessarily anticipate before you did so? Well, the PhD was definitely a part of my plan, my mm. life plan. So I always intended to earn a PhD. I just never thought about the fact of being first. And that I intimidated. I was a bit intimidated. I was afraid of myself, if you really want to know the truth about it. <laughs> but I said, oh, wow. But I really like what Gilda said about owning it. And I wrote that down to remember that because you really do have to own it. And in running a business, you have to own it every day. One of the barriers, a major barrier that minority-owned businesses have to contend with, especially if you are black, and then black and female, mm. is you tend to always get relegated to being the MBE minority business enterprise or the WBE women business enterprise on the team, that you really can't do anything other than that. Mm. And I'm constantly fighting. So wait a minute. I went to school with you and with you and with you. We all sat in the same classes. My grades sometimes were even better. So why is it all of a sudden that we can only do the MBE piece or the WBE piece? And the way they have broken these percentages down, the WBE is the lowest on the it's it's at the bottom 4% MBE can be anywhere from 15 to 20 to 30% of the job the WBE piece is 4% and I look at them I said I don't want that I won't take it I won't work on the project I'll work on somebody else's job I said how do I run a business on 4% so I'm constantly telling people all the time, yes, if you need someone to fill that slot, I'm happy to do it, but you're going to give, give us meaningful work. We're going to be a meaningful part of the team or just go and get someone else. And it's constant 
where they consider, oh, that's just the MBE or the WBE and nothing else. And where I am now in life, we prefer to just prime because everything else, it's a constant, constant fight, even after being in business. And we've been in business now 43 years. Mm, And even after being in business that long, I'm still dealing with the barrier of filling the MBE slot or the WBE slot. And I, like Yilda says, I own it and I have, I'm able now to say, no, I just won't do it. Call somebody else. You're hitting on something that I really wanted to explore with you too, which is that the interesting thing about role models is that by their nature, they tend to be trailblazers. <laughs> um, it creates kind of a conundrum of sorts, because since you're charting your new territory, you're trying to find out where you're going to go. You've got this drive to be a PhD, in your case, Dr. Abram. And the whole time, there aren't any role models for you yourself to follow. So my question is, from where did you pull your inspiration to pursue your career goals? Dr. Abram, why don't you take this? From my parents. Let's start there. They always believed in education. Mm. Uh, and they th- believe that for poor people, education is the way out. Uh, my parents, I was fortunate, even though I'm from the South, um, my parents were educated. My mom had a master's degree. My dad uh, had an ED. Uh, and my mom graduated from college in 39. My dad graduated from college in 41. And They pushed us every step of the way that it was very important to be educated because that was the way out. Uh, I have three sisters. There were four girls. We have all have terminal degrees in what we do. And um, we just looked at it like that. I was fortunate in going to college. I went to an HBCU undergrad, and there were several female PhDs on the faculty, but the faculty was very nurturing, and many of the black professors there, they were all PhDs, a small college, very nurturing, and the women, the women PhDs went out of their way to push the females who were there, so I had role models along the way with my my parents and then my college professors. And then when I got to graduate school, again, I was fortunate in that there were black PhDs in my field. They were males, but they were also nurturing. So I, I, I had them to look up to. And I had them when times were dark. And Gilda tell you about that when you're doing your research and nothing is going right. And you just say, oh, I want out of here that I could (laughs) call them. And they were steadying influences to say, just hang in there. It'll be all right. It'll be all right. So along the way, I did have role models. They some necessarily weren't engineers, but they had they you know, they were doing well, they handled themselves well, and I just, I looked up to them, and they kept me 
going. Well, it goes back to the old saying, nature abhors a vacuum. And, you know, you may not have had a direct line to a role model in, in terms of chemical engineering, but there were role models that you could seek out and find and who were filling the vacuum that was um, at the top of your terminal degree program at that point. So that's uh, that's really interesting. Dr. Barabino, what about you? Um, where did you get your inspiration, your source of inspiration as you went through your educational experience? So like Lilia, I shared the um, inspiration coming from parents. So my parents also were very much uh, with the mindset that education was a way out. Education was a way to the future. And uh, my siblings and I, it was drilled in us that you will get an education. My parents had not had college degrees, but they were making it very clear that that was an expectation for their children. And I, too, went to an HBCU at the undergraduate level. So there's some things that Lilia just described that I benefited from as well. But then when I was leaving from an HBCU with a chemistry degree with aspirations towards a graduate degree in chemical engineering, it sort of stopped there. And I, when I was admitted to Rice uh, University in Houston for my PhD in chemical engineering, I was the first African-American that they had ever admitted into the graduate program in chemical engineering there. Unbelievable. Yeah, so so much for looking for role models and inspiration. And as a matter of fact, (laughs) a lot of what I received was, I don't know if you're going to make it. You yep. know, yeah, oh, wow. and, and yep. it was constant. Mm-hmm. So some of it was they would say things like because of your background. I was like, OK, I came from an HBCU and I'm an African-American woman. But I knew that it wasn't just that. Mm-hmm. I knew that the environment was not set up for a person like me and that that there was so much more to it. And so where did I pull inspiration? Any and every place I could find it would from my own resources, any information I could find and look up on my own. I learned to, to um, like lean on my spouse and other family members. The encouragement, because sometimes what you need is just that encouragement, stick in there, right. you can do it, you can do it, even if it's not coming specifically from your discipline. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be very helpful. The other thing that I found to be helpful, if you're the only one in a particular discipline, but there are other people who share your background. They might be from different disciplines. Mm-hmm. Let them be your friends. I had friends in every other discipline that I could find. Um, and it turned out to help me even later in my career where I would collaborate with people from the social sciences. Because one of the things I was trying to understand was the organizational dynamics and how do you understand and navigate these environments that weren't meant for you. And that's been very helpful. And one person in particular, I do want to point out, his name is David Hall. He was um, had been Dean of the Law School at Northeastern and he had become provost. And he reached out to me to consider serving as a vice provost for undergraduate education at Northeastern. Because I had learned so much and done so many things across different disciplines, It turned out to be a a good move for me career-wise, but from him, I learned so much about how to be an academic administrator, but also how to be a good person, how to look out for others, how service was really 
our calling if you're going to be in these environments. And I know Lilia has seen it as well throughout her career and the choices that she's made in the kinds of communities that she served. And those lessons are really great and the kind of career sustaining lessons that are important. And I think that we can all point to someone who um, really helped in that vein where there's some really sustaining kind of um, mentorship or encouragement that uh, makes a difference. So I, I did want to point out some of uh, what David Hall was able to do for me um, professionally. Well, that, and I would just like to add, Bob, if you please, don't mind, please that, go. Like, uh, like Gilda said, when I was in uh, graduate school working on my PhD, um, most of my classmates were married. <laughs> they were all men, of course, and most <laughs> of them were married. And I was not married. In fact, I did not get married until later, much later. Um, so I found that I had to have other friends. And most of my friends, believe it or not, were in the law school at the University of Iowa. And the reason for that is, like engineering majors, they don't sleep. <laughs> they up <laughs> all night. So I did a lot of my studying in the law school at the law library because I had a girlfriend who was uh, majoring. She was working on her law degree. And we sort of just hung out together for the whole three years she was there because she was up all night. I was up all night. So we had similar patterns. And she was a very good source of inspiration to me. And one of my mentors, Dr. Cecil Lu Hing, Dr. Lu Hing was one of the ones that recruited me to Washington University for my master's, and he just kept up with me. And when I got my PhD, I was able, I had an outside reviewer. He served on my PhD panel, mm. and he has just sort of pushed me all the way since my master's degree. And then when I started the business, he told me to go look up Dr. Leon Weinberger. Dr. Weinberger helped me. So they've just two steadying influences. And if you find one or two that will help, then you can get so much further. And you notice that there are both men, but my person I hung out with in graduate school for the PhD was in the law school because of similar patterns patterns in how we had to work and how we had to live and survive. And she was one of the few black females at that time in the law school. So we had a lot in common. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like it was like definitely a match made in heaven to help you get yes. through that situation. Yes. Can I... We we're running out of time, and I just want to real briefly get an understanding of how helping people, uh, how being a role model for other people in your in your business has actually helped your own career successes to take off. I mean, Dr. Barabino, what, what what would you say the the result has been of being a role model in terms of what it's done for your own career? So for my own career, I think it has really led me to a career of service and leadership. And part of the reason why I've taken on leadership roles was so that I could have a seat at the table and be in a position to have a broader influence 
and helping others and providing guidance for their career development, helping ensure that others didn't necessarily have to go through the types of things that I went through and that people could learn from the experiences that I had so that if I could share that in a way that we could actually increase and broaden the presence and success of other underrepresented minorities and, and African-American women in particular, that it was a, a very rewarding path to take. And so I think that's sort of um, where my career, it's, uh, the direction my career has taken based on that. And it's a great answer, great answer. Dr. Uh, Abram, what would you say? I would say the very same thing. I try to serve and my career specialty being environmental. I believe that environmental engineers can make the world a better place. And women, as we started off with this, women need, in my profession, the work that I do, we need to be there because we are the nurturing people. We take care. And in my profession, we know how to do that. So I try to make myself available Whenever someone calls on me to be there, I try to serve, I join committees, I take on this role, that role, so that I can get out there and say the importance, especially of people of color, because we are the ones that really bear the brunt of all of the environmental mistakes or handling oh, that are done point. in this world, the trash dumps, everything. We're usually the ones that bear that burden. And I try to say that we know how to solve this problem. Let's listen and let women need to be out there. We need to be out front because we are the nurturers. What a great point and a great way to end the show. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been really great. And thank you. And thank you. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Now, our guests today have been Dr. Lilia Abrin and Dr. Gilda Barabino. For more details about the topics we discussed or to find out more about the Doing a World of Good program, visit doingaworldofgood.org. And that does it for this episode of Doing a World of Good. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search for us on your favorite podcast directory or visit doingaworldofgood.org. On behalf of everyone at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, I'm Bob Norp. Thanks for listening. Thank you.